WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Proden. I'm Dave Proden, and this is episode 14. Since the last time I shifted my role, albeit slightly shifted at times, from communications and whatever else I did then to brand and whatever else I do now, which was around June 2017, the conversations or, or maybe the formalization of those conversations about what surfing is, what it can be, how we either do or don't tap into it, have ramped way, way up. And this comes up on this podcast in virtually every episode now. The tension between competitive surfings and the surf industries and the surf media's decades-long campaign for mainstream acceptance, wrestling with the actual surfing world's potent, powerful, and impactful nonconformist foundation. In essence, are we being posers? I'm not going to be an ASP WSL apologist here. We definitely haven't always navigated this tension correctly. And that may be putting it optimistically. Beyond that, and it comes up in today's conversation, I don't know if the broader surfing world has navigated this tension very well. Maybe it's a function of the commercialization of something special. Maybe we can do this with more honesty and authenticity and transparency and subsequently efficacy. It's 2020. Pretending to be something you're not simply doesn't work. That doesn't stop people from trying, but it still doesn't work. I mean, it really blows me away that the really aggressive conservative streak that has arguably corrupted and poisoned huge swaths of surfing over the course of the last several decades, the lemming culture it's created, the fear and insecurity with which we approach cultural issues and sexuality, race, 
wealth distribution, emotional well-being, constraints on expression, ad nauseum. For something born out of and arguably only appealing because of nonconformity, we sure like to insulate ourselves in blankets of security and denial a lot. But I digress. All right, episode 14. It's 2020 now, the start of a new decade, according to the Gregorians at least. And at this point, we'll take any reason we can to evolve to a better place. That evolution, however, has to rely on lessons learned from the past, lest history be doomed to repeat itself. A lot, a lot has happened in surfing in the last two decades. And for those of us who have been there in varying capacities, it's been quite a ride. This is especially so for those who have been in the spotlight, under scrutiny, performing at the highest levels of surfing, reinventing themselves, rolling with the punches, traversing tribulation, and coming through stronger and smarter and with more potential than ever. Our guest today is one of, if not the, favorite daughter of Ventura County. She qualified for the Elite Championship Tour at age 21, where she has flown the American flag for women's surfing since 2012. She's a two-time winner of the U.S. Open of Surfing, someone who, despite the trials of being a woman in the sport and surfing world in the early and mid-aughties, she's transformed into someone who is well-supported both inside and outside of surfing. And she's entering 2020 with a new and uncompromising focus on what she can be, what she can achieve, and what that means to others. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Sage Erickson. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. I thought you were boxing. So we're here in the, the Channel Islands factory. I always like coming up here even if I don't have anything to do. I just, I go into Nathaniel and Blake's room and they've got that big grid on the wall where they've got like on the, on the y-axis are all the team riders and then on the x-axis are all the models and they track like who's ordering what. And is, is your name up there yet, Dave? You know what? It was a, <laughs> it was a career highlight for me. It's not on the axis, it's off to the left with like... Dave and I'm like all right I'm on the same board it's cool um but yeah they're probably frustrated because usually I come up here and they're like what do you want to talk about I'm like I just want to sit here and look at the board I love it I mean any place on tour when I see you I'm always asking you what model you're on because you've got the newest and funnest actually I think that's changed you haven't been writing just high performance boards right no I'm not I'm not I'm I'm not like a mover of high performance crafts I don't think (laughs) but I mean it's funny like I, I you know, we live in California and it's one of those things where like 95% of the days in Southern California, you can ride the same board and the other five where you're like, this is a super good day. I, I might want to ride like a performance board. You're so comfortable on the other one anyway. You're like, I'm going to stick with what works. Yeah, totally. I think, um, you know, I've probably the past two years gotten a little bit more in trouble because uh, I needed to be more on a performance based board, but it's crazy, just different models. And um, especially being in California, sometimes it's hard to get motivated to go out and like grind three turns and be super committed. So anything that kind of flows and that makes me go fast is something I think 
maybe with even age that I'm getting older, I'm like anything that's easier, bring it on. Like sometimes I'm over the challenge. Yeah, it's interesting. Like when when you talk to people that surf at a super duper high level, whether it's on tour or not, it's interesting to get their perspective on like, well, do you do you ride a bunch of different surfboards? Do you stick with your high performance? Like you know, I was talking to Mick the other day. And he's like, oh, yeah, like for like 99% of my 20 year career, like I rode the same exact board um, to stay super sharp. It's funny, though, because like and you get that idea in your head that, you know, I think that's like a a competition side where you're so focused on, you know, I can't ride anything else because when I'm in my heat, I'm this is this is what I have to ride. But what I found is in those other boards, like the diversity of your surfing changes. So, you know, like. For me, I'm not very strong off the bottom sometimes. If I get a little lazy, like I like a stand tall style. And I think that's coming from the point breaks up here mm. um, in Ventura. But what I found is like riding a twin fin, it changes the line that I can draw or that I personally thought I could. Yeah. So when I get back on my shortboard, like I approach the wave differently. So instead of looking at those boards or as something that's hindering my possible performance, it's actually making me a better surfer and I'm also enjoying myself. So like, I feel, I feel like that kind of, you know, carries over. Yeah. And, and I mean, surfing, it happens on the most dynamic canvas in all of sports, really. Like, and, and I think that's a good point of riding different equipment forces you to have a different perspective and enhances your perspective. It depends. Like some people like to just stay consistent so right. they're confident. But I, get, I totally can appreciate the idea of saying, like, I rode a single fin or a mid-length or a twin fin. And my bottom turn changed or my top turn changed or I saw something in the wave I would never have seen otherwise. And I'm going to take that and reincorporate it back into my high level shortboard surfing. Totally. And I think, you know, I think that's true surfing, right? There's a, a uniqueness in each person's style or the wave. Like it's never the same. So how can I think that, you know, one board is going to suit my everyday life? Like I actually became enthralled with the adventure of, of deciding what I was going to ride and embracing those feelings and you know like at the end of the day like our motivations change it like change and the reason that we do stuff so for me in my career I've had to change things or you know establish a new motivation for me to get out and go surfing every day yeah and and I think the idea of like you're prioritizing time in the water you know and and it's interesting it kind of doesn't matter who I talk to or who we talk to in in our space they always put that up there where it's like Look, what, what do professional surfers do on our day offs? We like we love surfing. We're going to go surfing. So any more time in the water I can get is actually better for my surfing. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, that that's really what it is. You have to spend time in the water because that's the only way you'll get better is, is by experience, right? And anything. So the more time spent and, yeah, just comfortability and fine-tuning my boards and that's only going to better my performance. I was going to bring this up later, but you've teed it up so nicely. (laughs) (laughs) So um, a friend, a really good friend of mine put me on to the David Chang podcast. And David Chang is like a, he's a chef and like a food personality, major domo. He's this amazing guy, Netflix shows, podcast. And he brought on Jerry Saltz, who's an art critic, like a really famous art critic from New York. And they were talking about the merging or just the sort of the, the philosophies between food and art. And they hit on this point at one point in the conversation that was we've been hovering around in a lot of our conversations, which is whether it's art or food, anyone can do it in terms of most people have the motor 
skills to actually execute it. But they're saying, you know, the difference between the super great artists or the super great chefs or the super great anything, in their opinion, is not just that they can do it, but they imbue what they do with like a voice or a soul. And it, and it really slapped me in the face when I listened to it because I was like, oh my God, like this is kind of what we're getting at when we're talking to these high level surfers. Because from a fitness standpoint or a technique standpoint, the the, the level that you have potentially is kind of ubiquitous. Like you're all at that level. I think the difference between, and I'm an observer, the difference between the really great surfers and everyone else is how much voice or soul comes through in their surfing. And I wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that's like a mixed bag of candies, like in the sense that there's so much to it. And, you know, I've thought about so many stages of my career of like what point has kept me coming back or kind of reinventing myself um, in surfing, you know, because I feel like I, I can be attracted to a lot of different things in life, not specifically just competing. And, you know, that's kind of been a battlefield at times too for myself with focusing and, you know, like we were mentioning earlier, like time spent in the water, like at times I haven't wanted to go out. And so I think you know, a part always comes back to what is my driving force on the inside. And I actually, it was funny. I talked to one of my Australian friends a couple years ago and they were being like coached on why the Brazilian surfers are so good. And in their camp, they were talking about because they have religious belief, because they believe in God. So that soul connection of that, you know, what they're doing is for a greater purpose. It gives them this idea that they you know, are unstoppable, that their faults, um, their trials or tribulations, that those are just stepping stones, right? And it really resonated with me because as she's talking about this, I felt, you know, that's a big driving force in my life. You know, I, gosh, I guess it's like my soul side is like seeking a purpose in life. And yeah, that's God-based, but I feel like as humans, we're all, you know, at one point searching for, you know, what makes sense of it all, all the hard times, the good times. And, uh, it kind of made me laugh because I was like, instead of them coaching or educating like why a type of surfer is better, like why wouldn't you dive into like each individual's passion? Like what drives you every day? You know, what wakes you up in the morning? What makes you feel the best? Like, and I just, I love, gosh, challenging kind of your basic structure of what people think is the way to be successful. And I think that ties back in like your soul and, and what, your passion is and I think even in sport or anything everyone has a specific talent and so I feel like for success if you have talent opportunity and drive you'll be successful and I feel like sometimes those components aren't searched out enough an individual to where they they don't find that that winning thing in their life well the the point on the Brazilians is really interesting because we've talked about this a a lot in the last couple of years with the rise of the Brazilian storm and it's kind of the same thing if you think about in the 70s or the 80s like there's no internet right so so if if I'm in Brazil like the best surfing I'm going to be exposed to day in and day out is essentially the best guy at my beach or when the tour comes to town once a year so it's really limited and you flash forward to 2020 and everyone has access to the internet so any shaper in any part of the world can access information in terms of what are the best shapers doing and any coach can say what's the best technique and surfers can watch you know webcasts or they can watch video clips and pick up things so that really levels the development field like pretty much anywhere and so kind of what 
that coach and I think what you're getting at, the point of difference ends up becoming the motivation, right? right? And it might be a spiritual motivation, which, I mean, that's that happens across all of sports, or a financial motivation. I, I think that's a huge draw. I think you're totally right. I think that's a huge driver in terms of the success of Brazil recently. Right. And then being from Southern California, it, to no fault of our own, but like the reality is when the world changes like that, like you might not have that inherent drive. You might have to go back and rediscover it. Right, 100%. And I think, you know, that has been a big, yeah. I mean, I'm Californian, right? I, I, you know, grew up in Hawaii and I started surfing there, but I moved back um, to California when I was 14 and started competing. And I was in, you know, at the time, that's, here was the mecca of the surf industry. The brands were thriving. You were close to the, you know, corporate companies. Pretty much it came down to if you were in California, you kind of had you know, an extra step forward to being successful or getting sponsorship and having a career. And so, you know, that was kind of the idea. And as I grew up competing, you know, I was never, I was never the best. And I, I got better results here than when I lived in Hawaii. Obviously the competition's like really hard over there and there's a different mentality surrounding surfing, especially at a younger age there. I think you were kind of nailing it. I mean, even there's a comparison, even for the proximity effect, which you're talking about in terms of advantage of being in California. I mean, I I grew up like a little bit in Australia, but then mostly Orange County. And we noticed it all the time where it was like, that's where the surf industry is. So you have a better chance of being sponsored, even if there's a better kid 60 miles away. Exactly. Thank you, Dave. (laughs) Helps so much being with someone so intelligent. (laughs) Um, But no, that's exactly it. Like, you know, I felt I had an advantage in that sense. I didn't because I didn't feel like my talent wasn't yet established because I just, I wasn't as good as some of the other girls. You know, I competed with Carissa and even Bethany and those girls were were just so good and technical, the same point, like now looking back and watching the difference. So I really had to put time in and observe how I could get better. And, you know, luckily... I had the advantage of having a stable sponsor to be able to continue to compete and do the junior series and um, even not get the best results. Well, we're going to get to the, the re- I'm going to come back to the reinvention point, but I think you kind of spoke about it a little bit already. Your career in the surfing and sporting spotlights has really traversed almost 15 years, depending on how you look at it. Like you're still a baby, you're 29, but a lot has happened in not just the surfing world and the sporting world, but kind of society at large. And with that lens of, of change over the course of that time, and in some cases, like really radical change, how do you kind of view your career today versus when you started? Like, what, what was it like when you started? How did you get started? And what were your goals then? Gosh, I mean, the, the first up, I think I, at this point in my career, I'm really proud of myself. I feel like I endured a lot of challenges and, and not that everybody goes through them at all, but I feel like I had some really big extremes in my life and you know, I don't, I don't come from a, a successful, financially stable, like cookie cutter family. My parents were separated at a young age. You know, my brother and I juggled between Hawaii and California. I lived, I'm from Ojai, California, right? That's like 30 minutes inland. So, you know, my dad had a big influence on always being at the beach when I was younger. My brother, he's three years older. Noah, he's an incredible surfer, way better than I am. He should have been the one that was successful. But for me, I, I, stayed, I started later and I started in Hawaii, which was an amazing place to start. Of course, like I came from California, so going to school with no shoes, having sand on my feet, 
my teacher letting me store my surfboard in the class like that is like a child's dream right so that my first experiences is surfing was just really sweet and really fun and when I ended up leaving Hawaii, coming back to California, like I was saying, in Hawaii, I never did that good in competitions. And it was a little bit less here in California. So I ended up winning my first NSA contest. And that, that first instinct of, of winning or, the, or just the first experience of winning really gave me this hope that I could, I could be good enough to, to compete and that I wasn't like third best or fifth best. And I enjoyed that feeling of accomplishment. And so, gosh, I went on in my junior career to... Like I would have a win and then I'd have a last place. And even with my sponsors, I got nothing. You know what I mean? Like prize money. My mom was like struggling to get me to every event. And that wasn't even at a professional level. There's no international travel. And it was really cool because my mom just always let me choose what I wanted to do at a young age. And whatever I was passionate about, like she'd buy me a violin for Christmas. We barely had any money. And that's the most expensive probably instrument you can buy. I was terrible. I played for maybe like three weeks and I was like, I couldn't stand the sound. And It's one of those instruments that if you're not good, you really don't want to. You're wanna, really bad. You right? And you don't want to play it. You don't want to hear yourself be bad. Like it's the worst. Yeah, absolutely. I felt even bad for my teacher, right? And so my mom was never a person to hold that against me or make me do something. And so I always would come back to surfing. Like I just, I love that. And... So as I competed more, like I said, I, I would find successes and victories. And then I remember another sponsor came came in to offer me a contract that was like, yeah, out of the norm. I mean, I had nothing, you know what I mean, as far as finances. So Volcom came in at that stage, like they're a rock star company, incredible team, thriving. They had their Hawaii house and they came in and they asked what, you know, I would want. And my mom gave him a number and it was like, of course, like way over what we thought. And they absolutely honored it. And they said, yeah, and we're going to give you, you know, three years. And it changed my life, right? Because how, how old were you at this point? I was 18 years old. Okay. So this is, yeah, this opportunity changed my life in the way that I thought about things and myself. Because, you know, before then it was this battle of if I was good enough if I could keep up with like Carissa and Coco and all these girls that really had a kind of like paved road and this talent that was extraordinary. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind 
Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So at this point, you know, you you're you're a battler you're not thinking yeah i'm gonna win a world title it's just sort of i just need to get I, I my goal is to get as good as this person or that just kind of not it's not short term but it's sort of like it's a focused stepping stone approach absolutely and just financially right at the same time too like i, I didn't have the backing to make this dream happen or give myself the chance to it's so, it's it's funny you bring that up because i think it's and that you're talking about when you're 18 i think in 2020 like the financial investment is really radical and and pat o'connell and i were talking about this the other night because we've got um, kids and i've got twins they're six and his son's six and my son started surfing over the summer and his son surfs and he's like well do you get like you know people coming up to you and saying well your, your kid's going to be like a world champ and this and that i'm like probably not as much as you but like <laughs> sure like i work at the world surf league i get people being like this and that and i said to him well, this is probably for a few drinks but i was like look the way i look at it in 2020 if there's 106 year olds in the world today with a chance of qualifying for the CT, I'm not even talking about world titles. Right. <laughs> like at my, my cocktail napkin math is like 70 of those kids are from Brazil today. Yeah, right. Just based on talent and drive and motivation and opportunity. That means 30 of those kids, 30% aren't from Brazil. So that's where my kid fits in. He's right. not Brazilian. <laughs> 25 of those kids are kind of your Corona Kingsley's, Jackson Dorian's, like I'm pulling the kid out of school. He's flying around the world. I'm going to push him out at pipeline when he's eight kind of deal. Right. That's not my kid. You know, that means there's five, five kids who kind of like, I would put like the Dane Reynolds in there, you know, <laughs> in any conversation I can ram him in there, I will. But you know, like, came from Bakersfield, didn't start till he was 14, like certainly had a lot of opportunities when he was a teenager, but really it was more just he had a different approach and talent and was just sort of always going to get there, right? Right. And I'd said, Pat, I'm like, that's my son's lane if he has a lane. <laughs> so I, I'm not giving, I don't care. Like I just want him to surf and have a good time, but kind of goes back to the financial investment thing. Like right. to succeed today, you have to you have to be funded. And that, that's kind of always been the case. Yeah. Well, I love it because, Dave, your, your kids, they have a chance because I had a chance. You know what I mean? Like, right. if you look on paper, like, and I guess that's what, what I was getting to is that I ran up against a lot of obstacles in a, in a lot of places that weren't at ease for me to make myself what I am today. And that's when I say I'm proud. And a part was when Volcom presented that offer. And, you know, I was writing for O'Neill at the time. And I just, there was something about a loyalty that I felt towards O'Neill and that my mom felt that, you know, to give them a, a chance to honor what someone else did. Right. Um, and in that, it kind of, you know, it can get a bit weird because it's like, well, you know, a company didn't honor it to start with. And this other company came in like Volcom and said, we'll give you whatever you want. Right. And so you would think I would jump on that. But, you know, for me being a Californian, like at that time and, and wanting to have a loyalty to a company that did sponsor me for a long time, I, I felt like that was the right place to stay. And I think where I'm getting at is a lot of my career, I've had to make decisions based on having integrity 
mm. or loyalty or commitment. And even though something's been presented that may have been easier, right. um, to me it wasn't it wasn't the right decision. And I think I've constantly have seeked out doing the right thing and being the right person. Mm. And whether that's in friendships or gosh, relationships with sponsors or people. At the end of the day, a driving force for me is I love people. And that has to translate into everything or else, you know, I feel insecure, I feel like a bad person, or, or ultimately that affects my performance as a surfer, which sounds so weird. Well, like, you gotta get up and look at yourself in the mirror every day. Like right. at the end, and that's, that is a currency in and of itself. I was tripping out, I'm glad you shared that story because I'm like, I, I know Sage, I don't remember the Volcom era. Like, right. did I, am I bad at my <laughs> job? Like, I was just like tripping out. Yeah, no, 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 it, uh, it was something super personal. Like I was sharing, no one knew course, that yeah. that was there on the table for me. And so, yeah, it's just, it was a pivotal part in who I am as a person. And, you know, besides a company having investment or ideas and investment in me and, and my confidence, that's how it changed my life. You know, the, the, the financial challenge thing or, or the separated parents thing or however you want to frame it, the broken home thing, it's something that it, it comes up a lot when we talk about, I mean, within the surfing world with like world champs, um, you know, and it's related to internal conversations at the World Surf League around, you know, new technologies like Surf Ranch and price points and things like that. And, you know, you can almost look at 43, 44 years worth of men's and women's world champs. And almost to a person, they came from lower income, you know, broken home. Like the ocean for a lot of these people became like a, a comforting place. Um, and that's how they got really good, you know. And it's not, you would never want to engineer those conditions um, for anyone. Like those are just things that happen in life. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something you see a lot in sports, and that goes back to that everyone can be have access to great things in terms of information, but like, where is your drive coming from? And it sounds like it was really formative for you because you looked at it as like a challenge to overcome. Right, and I think you know when you have when you grow up in like harsh conditions, obviously, so much of your early years as a child like is the foundation for who you're gonna be when you're older or the tendencies that you have or places that you reach for when you're struggling, right? And so it's, you know, with that brokenness, you're, you're forced to live in an extreme scenario, right, or scene. So you can either do exactly the same as what's making you feel uncomfortable or you can identify that and do the opposite. And I think that's where, I mean, it, it, you have to find your happy place, right? And that is where I think as a competitor, you get into a space consistently and you perform under pressure. And I think that's why, you know, I've found success in competing is because in a weird way, it, it, I'm so uncomfortable in that space of in a heat and, and being watched. But at the same time, when I find success in it and I could really come back down to who I am, I perform and I, I, I show up and I work hard and it kind of like, gosh, it's like a, I don't even know how to just like to put it in words, but it's like reinventing myself to what I maybe was said that I was going to be, right? Well, well that, the point on reinvention is a big one. And, you know, it, it's something that I, I mean, just as an observer feels like you've done time and time again in your career, and not so much reinvention, but just constant enhancement, refinement. And, you know, I was taught, as I mentioned, I talked to Mick the other week and we were talking about this exact topic of there's a lot of hype around young people when they qualify for the tour. Um, sometimes there's a lot of hype. I think especially if they come out of Orange County, right? Because the yeah. megaphone's a bit closer to the mouth. 
And sometimes you see people, they, they hit the CT and they feel like they're fully formed and they kind of get their, their brains beat in because yeah, this, you're absolutely not. The, the, well, that's right. Right. I mean, especially for these people that qualify at like 17, it's like, man, I, I, geez, like from like physically, emotionally, talent wise, like psychologically, you're just not there. But he said, and I thought this is interesting because he's maybe the candidate more so than anyone in recent history that was as hyped as ever when he qualified in the early oddies. You know, like Kelly was in sabbatical. Um, you know, I think like Sonny and Aki had won the title at sort of a later stage of their career. Andy hadn't won a title yet. Right. And he, Mick really represented like the future. And he told me, he goes, I, I, I think he said he qualified in 2001. He's like, I didn't feel like I could win a world title. I didn't believe in myself I could win a world that's title till so 2006. Wild. It's so wild. And, he, and But that's kind of, I, I, I want to get your impressions of that because you qualified at 21, which is super young as well. And I want to get your impressions of going from the QS to the CT, what you felt like when you qualified, if you felt like you had gaps, you know, if your goals changed. I, I want to know about that time in your life. Yeah. Well, f for me, you know, I did the QS for three years. I qualified on the third year. First year, I missed to buy spots. Second year, two spots. Thought my whole life was over. Third year, made it happen. And I, you know what? It's, it's like I listened to Steph's podcast with you, and she talked about that when she first got on tour, she believed that she was going to be a world champion and that she had the confidence and that she knew she was going to be. I was that person that I was just like so relieved I made it. Right. You know, that was a huge accomplishment. Um, at the time, there wasn't that many Californians on tour. Well, I was going to ask. I mean, who, who else was on tour from California at that time? I mean, Courtney. Right. Probably was yeah. in Courtney. I grew up surfing against, you know, and she she helped me become the competitor that I am today. But as far as just Californian presence on the tour, there wasn't much, you know, and it always feels good to go on to something when someone's paved the road. Right. I love example. I love, you know, watching my competitors. And so anything close to home is going to make me feel more comfortable. And so once I got on, I mean, it was it was a little bit terrifying. You know, it was a lot of expectation. Mm. Um at times I, you know, couldn't find that space where I really believed in my talent. And even at 21, I don't think that my talent was established enough to win a world title. Hmm. Um, but I also got to identify that as a growing platform and to observe and take in. I think, gosh, I maybe made one heat the first year I was on tour. Um, so I got pretty beat up. You know, like it's like even when you're watching tennis, like the rhythm changes, especially in sport. If if you're doing good, it's easier to do good. That familiar kind of um, feeling continues on. And so for me, like I just yeah, I just got beat up and then I've gone back to questioning my ability and, you know, if I was ready. And I used to ride like really funny Channel Islands, like epoxy boards. And like the older that I've gotten, I realized that like on tour, um, you really need to ride like the high performance boards like rocker and there's a lot of technical stuff within it and I was pretty much riding like a skim board you know also and so you know that's been fun to to revolutionize like or be a part of the evolution of like me actually riding more than one board per event and well, I'm, I'm interested in because I mean there's no there's no greater place to learn than like being in there exactly. and watching these people do their thing like what are some of the things you picked up between 21 and now in terms of what you needed to change? Because, I mean, observedly, your surfing's never been better, but were there things like, in addition to equipment, were there things like technique? Were there things like fitness? Were, like, you know, even sort of a mental approach to competing? Were, were all these things, th things that you kind of thought about and worked on over the course of those years? That's, like, 
I think my biggest message to anybody in sport is like there's no rush because there's so many dynamics that go into making you a really good athlete or a world champion or you know like for me I'm not a world champion but I've won you know a CT event so that's like the highest level that you can perform in my sport and so like I even remember, you know, when you're 21, you're traveling with tons of friends, like a group of girls. You're, you're challenged by your, you want your friend to do good, but you, you want to beat her at the same time. Like that comes back even to the house you're staying in, right? There's a dynamic even there with you getting along with your housemates and then having to be able to go out and perform your best. So it's like to find a balance of uh, friendship, competing, to know the right boards to ride in the right spots, to deal with jet lag, to deal with travel, to continue to establish who you are. I mean, at 21, I didn't know who I was completely, right? That that identity kind of changes from day to day. I'm figuring out what people I like to be around, you know, what I like to talk about, what I'm comfortable with. Am I a party or am I not a party or am I, you know, like there's so much establishment Um, in those years as an individual and that's just even that's like on a personal side then you go into your boards and what you're comfortable size-wise with waves how you feel under under pressure uh, what your sponsors are requiring you to do what they're not what you know there's like all these these complex dynamics and it can be really overwhelming but that's why I think you know when that when people used to say oh you know women peak at 22 on tour like you know, that's your Mecca, you should have it all together. Like, I didn't know shit at 22 when I think about it. Um, so just but wait I, till you're 36 and <laughs> you don't know shit. But I believed in, in the process. And I think, you know, an, another really big thing was I learned from all the challenges that, you know, those were the moments that had the most treasure in it for me to learn and to grow. And it challenged me to, when I would lose, to ask myself, okay, what do I, what do I need to change to win? Um, who do I want to surf like? Who like, and to be honest with myself, I think that has been a leading force in my career is is being honest. In my in my lacking motivation, am I wanting to do something else? And yeah, like if like I I never wanted to run away from my feelings, mm. and I think that was a big part is learning emotional control. Well, and I mean, you talk to, you can talk to a lot of people. Like I'm, I'm of the opinion that you never know a hundred percent who you are. Like it's always a process. Oh, and I'm it's, so glad you told me that. Well, right? I mean, I'm hardly, so I, I'm, I'm hardly an example to, to uh, emulate, but my, but my point is it's like, you can listen to people that, 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 that or, or meet people that seem like they have everything together, you know, yeah. and they're like 40, 50, 60. And they're like, I'm not done. Like I, you know, by the time I'm 65, I might think differently, you know, right. and I think that's kind of it. I think the the fluidity and, and honesty that you talk about, being honest with yourself, it can hurt because you're like, I don't want to beat myself up every day. But you gotta feel it. You can't, you can't well, you run can't, from you, it. Exactly, you can't put the visor down and be like rigid and be like, no, this is who I am. I think I think it's. I'm I'm also interested. You know, Ohio is a country place. Ventura <laughs> County is a quote unquote country county, Ag County. Um, <laughs> The culture shock of being, you know, on the world stage in different places at a young age. I'd imagine you had a little bit of that just from having to do the QS. But can you talk a little bit about that and just meeting different people and different ways of thinking and and having that kind of test, not test, but I mean, challenge who you thought you were and who you could be? Yeah. I mean, I, I started surfing late. I'm from Ohio. It was a struggle to get to the beach. I'd watch, you know, girls like, I mean, Courtney's even from Santa Ana. Right. 
Um, so she was from inland also, but I would see, you know, kids that had a lot more time in the water. And so I always felt, oh, they're going to be better. And that's just the way it is. And I got to work harder. Or, you know, I always felt guilty that, you know, I didn't, not that I didn't have the right resources to get out there because my mom drove me when I could. I just felt this unfair advantage. And I never wanted to victimize myself, right? That was something that I think helped is that, I mean, when I looked around being from Ojai, it's like one of the most beautiful places in the world. Like the sunsets are incredible. The the mountains, like I laugh now because it used to be like tailgate parties, like high socks, dicky shorts, like almost looked like pants. Um, they were so long. And now it's turned into this like super hip, super cool place. And I think like, I thank God because I'm like, it's so funny, like, I was so harsh about this place when I was younger, thinking that it, you know, it, it took away from my surfing career what I wanted to be, and now I go back, and it's, like, this absolute sanctuary, and I'm, like, I'm so proud to be from there, like, I I love it, and I think that's a part of, of growing up is, like, you may think a certain way when you're younger, and then you grow up, and you realize, oh, my God, like, everything in my life was totally meant to be and totally like it all comes back around you know what I mean for sure and I and I think that's it probably is like you you never finished as a project in terms of identity or human being but there are experiences that form a level of comfort even Absolutely. in the unknown and you can just breathe and be like you know I, I really appreciate this place that I thought was a huge you know, um, shackle yeah. in a lot of ways for a lot of years. It's country. Like we used to ride horses. Like we, my summers, instead of being spent at the beach, my mom owned 17 horses and half of those were in Wyoming. So we'd trek out there with them. And yeah, that was not your ideal situation when you're, you know, aspiring to become a pro surfer. Like I, you know, I didn't you're know. You're thinking of everyone else being like, yeah. they're out in the water. What am I doing? Yeah. yeah. I grew up in a, a coffee shop up in Ohio for 10 years. My mom and grandma owned it. It was called Java Heaven. And they're, you know, like even I felt so old at the time, but my mom used to let me handle giving people change back. We'd have our regulars. I could do the push drip coffee. And that even would be, oh, that's taking time away from the water. But like I established a love for people, mm, right? And sure. an interaction. And in third grade, I would walk like a mile home from, from school to the coffee shop. And like what third grader gets to do that? Like, so I think, it, you know, I look back down and I'm like, well, all those things like built really strong areas in my life. So an independence and, you know, being alone at times or you know, just just so much of it. And so I had an, an amazing childhood in that way. Oh, yeah. I don't know if many third graders walk these days. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what, do you have a, um, a fairly high-level coffee set up at your house now? Or are you just sort of a press the button, give me the, give you, me the coffee cup? You know what? We... Um, my mom and I still live together, which is like one of my favorite things ever. But you would think that I would have a technical setup. We're still using like a coffee bean grinder from the coffee shop. So, I mean, that thing's almost 20, 25 years old and just a regular drip coffee. That's probably come around. I'm sure there's places in Brooklyn that are like super hip that are like would die to have that like it's, set up. It's so funny. I got to I'll send you a photo. It's ridiculous. <laughs> In addition to the surfing side of your career, observedly, fitness seems to be a pretty big component of it these days um, in terms of working with Ruka and developing workout gear, um, discussing health and workout-related topics on social media. I mean, it seems kind of obvious that like fitness and being a professional athlete would go hand-in-hand, hand, but that's not always the case in surfing. So I was curious to get your thoughts on how intent, what, what role that's played in your life and how intentional it's been in terms of career development. 
Yeah. I mean, I've had two stages in my career. One, when I was younger, I was a lot heavier. Okay. Um, just in general. Right. I probably, right now, I weigh between like 130, 135. I think of the highest in my career, I won the junior at the US Open. I was 158 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of weight difference, right? And I think in any sport, in anything really, the healthier that you feel, the more clarity in your mind, the better that you're going to do each each day. And so for me, the second stage was I had that weight issue. I got told, um, you know, I got paid too much because of the weight that I was at, even though I still performed. That was the funny thing to me. I'm like, wait, I just won. You know but what who, I mean? Like, and who's telling you that? Uh, disclosed. Okay, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> it was well, part- I, I was wondering if you meant like <laughs> abstract societies telling you that, or no, like, or it was, specific- a, it was a specific brand right, that, yeah. that had supported me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was a confusing element, right? Because it's like, well, do you want me to perform, or do you want me to be, be a model? Do you want me to be hot? Do you want me to do what I want? Right. Like what I love, or you know. So that's a part how I was saying when you're younger, there's all these fundamental pieces that are getting put together and. They're challenging and hard. And, you know, after that, it wasn't that I lost weight. That wasn't, that almost made me feel worse, right? So I continued to, to be heavier and to sway up and down and with my weight. And probably about 23, 24, I was more comfortable in my own skin and identity. And, and, I, and I realized, you know, to perform really well, fitness actually matters. It actually does change that. If I'm strong on the outside, it's going to make my inside strong. So if I've worked on the inside and I've dealt with all these, you know, complexities of weight and, and being a female and, you know, like, give this a try. I don't like working out. That's the funny thing. Originally, it was like, I, I didn't want to do something I didn't like doing. Like, you know, I, I didn't like the feeling of leg workouts or like, I just, it's, yeah. And what I found that it was good to do something I didn't like because then I learned to love it. Mm. And the feeling of being strong actually made me really confident. And I actually did love the affirmation in other people too. Like I I did love it. People were like, you look amazing, Sage. Like, great job. Like, how did you transform from this to this? And that's a human thing to feel good about. Absolutely. I mean, mean, people say you look great. You're like, thank you. I feel better about myself. Totally. And And I have no denial in that, that it felt good to be appreciated for how I looked. Mm. And I felt like I was in a comfortable place or a safe place in myself that that wasn't going to just be my driving force as I wanted to look good for everyone else. And it was amazing to be aligned with Ruka, you know, like they're so individual based mm. and they love like all walks of life. But at the end of it, they also believe in fitness and exercising and feeling strong, kind of like what I was just talking sure. about. And so it's been really cool, like to be around a, such a diverse type of group. Like Maddie Matheson is like this like crazy cool chef, and he obviously doesn't look very fit, but he his like drive for cooking and for people is something I can resonate with. And we still show up and like try and work out together. And there's just like this fun unity to it. So, yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, because you you highlight that the fitness part for you was related to performance, you Absolutely. know, um, and not everyone has that. And it's, there's, you know, it's a disgusting double standard in all of sports, but certainly in surfing, like I, I cannot fathom a situation where anyone in the industry has looked at a male surfer and said, you get paid too much for how you look <laughs> right. kind of thing. Yeah. But that's just, it's just been, and we talked about your career having spanned 15 years and, and movements in sport and culture about balancing and equality and just the performance of high level high level female performance high level male performance being equitable but they might look different right and you know what's funny yeah is like when you're saying this that was that was such a big thing 
um, for a lot of my generation is the generation before us, you know, there was a big separation between the men and the female, you know, it, it, and, and granted the women were, were put through a harsher condition, you know, with prize money and, you know, questionable condition calls. And it kind of felt like the women were always on the back end of, of things. But I think, you know, my generation of females saw just the, gosh, what would it be? We just saw the opportunity that we really loved the boys and men that we grew up surfing with and found an encouraging factor. And I think we identified that surfing was actually a beautiful and sexy sport also at the same time, that there wasn't a separation between the men and the women, but that together there was this like beautiful unity or or kind of component really that elevated the women's side of our sport. And I think a part of that is the girls like thrived off each other. Like, you know, if Alana was, this was like the times of like Instagram, if Alana was getting more followers, like, you know, I may adjust my imagery a little different than what she had at the time, but you know, then friends like Laura would be shooting this way. And so I'd apply that to myself. Like, I feel like as a group of women, we had this camaraderie of kind of like elevating the beauty side of surfing. Um, and a part of that was fitness. Yeah. I mean, I think surfing is a visual medium and I, you can see elements of it on the men's side too, where it's like, well, you know, the, the person that this brand sponsors just looks good in the product like, right. and they're not, they're not winning a world title. You know, I do think on the, on the women's side, it, it has balanced out. I think it, it was interesting just watching it from an outsider's perspective and you talked about social media and the rise of like well these kinds of people are really dimensionalizing themselves purely in a sexual way or like a beauty-based way agnostic of their ability on a surfboard and there's always like an action reaction i remember carissa writing a blog post about it years ago on her blog about you know she is who she is and she's going to dress the way she wants and train the way she wants and look the way she wants and what's important for her is what's important for her. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if the surf industry's got it totally right. I think it's in a much better place in terms of respecting performance, respecting expression, but it's funny. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you sound like you, I mean, you obviously have a better grasp of it than I would because um, you've had to live through it for 15 years. For sure. And I think, you know, like there's always, it's always good to have um, some people that take it too far, right? Because you know, like it allows someone for myself to kind of find a balance within it, like mm. without the the falling of the criticism. Sure. You know, if someone po- posts something too sexy or, you know, and it, it's those type of things that you're like, oh, you blew it for us all. But in reality, it, it gave us a benchmark of what's acceptable or not. And I think um, with the evolution of like Instagram and establishing just a, a following or whatever it is, like that honesty of like what you're comfortable with and, and not being too kind of influenced by certain things and for the women you know that's it's it's a scale right sometimes you're a little bit extreme sometimes you're not sometimes you um and I feel like you know on the women's side there's this beautiful balance at the moment of beauty and performance empowerment and individualism like as a female and and kind of what we're capable of I I think each person's story is different so in some ways if if you want to be more scandalous like each to their own it, you mm. know it's your life at the end of the day well yeah and it's it's funny like outrage culture right where it's like whatever you do, someone's going to be pissed. It's right. too sexy. It's not sexy enough. And it's funny in surfing, which is, you know, it, and its roots kind of supposed to be nonconformist and kind of out there, like the amount of like conservatism, which is seeped into the industry and the media is kind of 
insane. Right. You, you said just before that, you know, for women, there's a scale. Would you would you appreciate it if that same scale was applied to men? I mean, I, I think it does. In what way? I think that every person has the opportunity at them to, to choose what how they want to represent themselves or right. what's going to represent them. So, I mean, for the men, like for men, I just women, if we're going to talk like, you know, women independence and women um, strength, like it's still that that it's still not above men like you know what i mean right if that makes sense like men still have the opportunity and not that it's not in they're not put in this extreme case it's just the choice for them just may not be as criticized a little bit i'm not sure it, like, i, I kind of get what you're saying i i think that the surfing world kind of has a long way to go in terms of growing and welcoming more people in from a diversification standpoint sure. or a position standpoint as i said there's this weird conservatism streak that's kind of permeated the industry over the course of you know a few decades and, and we talk about this all the time at the world surf league where you know the, the real raw foundation of professional surfing really square pegged itself trying to mainstream right sure. where it's like we're going to be the nfl of surfing right. to get more money so i can keep surfing that's right. kind of my like you know if you talk to the founders of surfing like that was the whole con it was like we're going to convince these people that this is a sport sure. so i can keep surfing kind of thing right <laughs> um and i i on it and i don't i mean look and everyone kind of is in the same boat like if you if you're a core surfer like you kind of do anything you take a job you do a photo shoot you go on a trip you do a contest just kind of so you can keep surfing totally <laughs> but I do think that in that process over those decades from 76 to now, the nonconformist, like radical thinking part of surfing w was almost quarantined out in a sure. lot of ways. And people kind of had this impression that like, well, we need a really clean, whitewashed image to break into mainstream culture. The funny irony is, is that in 2020 with the information age, you have things like jackass penetrating mainstream right. culture it's just people <laughs> being true to themselves and i think surfing kind of has to recalibrate itself and i'm not just talking about the world surf league i'm talking about like surfing writ large right. like people that do it surf shops the industry kind of have to say look like we are who we are you shouldn't criticize someone for wanting to express themselves right. in any form well i think that's the part that i was saying i i love in life challenging your kind of basic theologies or or even as you know the surf industry what you're supposed to be i love the challenge of of digging into that and finding a different route in a way because that's what i had to do to make to give myself a career yeah. because what i was presented with it said it wasn't going to happen for me right so the navigation of, of working beneath your just surface culture or what you know what's being said is going to be done is is what i like and i think and yeah, I mean, sur surfing to me has never been in a better place. Besides the industry, like on a company side, obviously having a lot of shifts in financial, I think that's also due to a lack of, gosh, like understanding human nature and individuals and highlighting that, like just trying, you know, so many teams and companies before Ruka, I was worried to sign with because it's like they, they hire or sponsor someone because of the individual, they're cool or they've got this type of look. And then three years later, they all look the same as the, their, their team riders. You know, it's the same message, the same look, the same imagery. Like if you pursued each individual on that team, gave them a platform to display what they thought was cool while wearing the product, like that seems like so much more authentic and so much more relatable. And those are parts where I feel like in social media or for me, like 
I got to not having a major sponsor for four years. I got to feel like crap and feel like I wasn't worth it. And then I got to choose like what I did like, what I was interested with, be honest about the situation, communicate that to people. And then I found myself like having more connections with people than ever before. And for not having a sponsor, like I had the same amount of followers that these people that rode for companies with millions of followers had. Right. And so I think that's really where the surf industry will find, at least on a brand side, kind of some improvement or... Well, I think you're, I don't know what you're getting at is like the destruction of the lemming culture in a lot of ways. And surfing sure. has been a lemming culture. I remember, I'm going to date myself here, but it was before you were on tour. <laughs> so every year we obviously have surfer orientation ahead of the start of the CT. It's, it's in some club room in Australia usually. And it's like, <laughs> you, you take a bunch of people that probably did not enjoy school and ram them in a room for four hours talking about insurance and whatever else. And it's just a disaster. <laughs> so, uh, years ago when I just started doing the international stuff, I had to get up there and give a spiel and I handed out note cards at the start. And, um, I just wrote, what was your favorite uh, zoo animal when you were a kid? And I uh, collected them before I went. And then I said, look, you know, it's my turn to get up there. And I was like, okay, everyone, you know, <laughs> swim. My name's Dave, and uh, well, you're all my heroes. And anyway, and I said, look, I, I handed these note cards out, and I asked this one question, and I tallied them up. And I said, I got, like, five rhinoceros and four lions and, like, three elephants and seven giraffes, like, whatever. I said, I have, like, 20 animals, right? right. And I don't have, um, like, 50 people saying tiger. Right. And my point is this, is like, don't conform and be what you think people want you to be. Just mm. be yourself. Totally. Because if we're going to succeed, and I'm just talking about the CT, but like we can apply this to all of surfing. It's like, if we're going to succeed as anything, you want to welcome as many people into the tent as possible. Sure. And I mean, this was at a time, like, I, I won't name names except for Dane Reynolds. Right. But like, he was a very, <laughs> a very impactful guy on tour. And he would, you know turn up and he's drawn his logos on his board and then the next event like all these other guys like the world's best surfers are like drawing their logos on their boards i'm like come on guys right. like we don't we don't just you know do you yeah um but i mean it, it does seem like that's something that pat has developed at ruka in the sense of like you know his whole balance of opposites ethos and the artist network program it, it does feel like he's received a lot of success because he has lent into it's, it's not fair to characterize it as like an island of misfit toys, but more so in the sense of elevating that to people get to be themselves. Sure. And just like you're saying, like coming to a meeting where traditionally you passing around a, a, a card saying, what is your favorite zoo animal? You know, people's eyes would roll or what does this matter to what we're going to talk about? Or can we just get through this? But just like Pat identified the beauty in an individual and just understanding that each person's you know, what, what's going on in your head is, is completely different. Everyone's perspective is different. So that's going to be spoken to differently. And there's, there's so much value in being able to communicate, right? That's one of the biggest things in life is communication. And so with, I feel like Pat, like he hasn't discriminated against any belief or passion, but found the beauty in that we, you know, bring us all together this meshing pot of people that are supposedly not supposed to get along and we're actually like the funnest most you know like experiential times of my life like to be able to relate to someone else that i would never be presented with is is so cool 
you know, it's funny. I, it reminds me, I was talking to Ashton Goggins a couple of weeks ago and this came up. Ashton, I love you. <laughs> Amazing podcast. You're fine. It's, it's all right. It's mediocre. <laughs> no, it's great. Um, but we were talking about this and we were saying like, you know, I, I got into surfing because it's super fun. But when I started reading about it, it, it kind of blew my mind because it became a window to all these different things, right. whether it was art or gender or politics, you know, listen to the podcast I said the same thing yeah. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean as opposed to like I, I think kind of like late oddies it became really self-referential where it was like I'm gonna tweet about this tweet and then this subtweet about this thing that no one gives a shit about right you know yeah and I kind of think that so yeah it's a pendulum I think now we're kind of expanding out because surfing is something that can be done so many different ways and attracts so many different people and at the end of the day if you're looking at the ocean as the ultimate arbiter for why you have a brand or anything, it's like, it's the one place that doesn't give a shit who you are. Totally. Like, it doesn't care where you're from, who you go to bed with, like, what gods you do or don't worship. It's right. just, it's there for everyone. Right. And I think, I mean, when you try and simplify surfing and you try and make it something that it's not, you know, you're forced to to start to look outward and and... I think the surf industry is just kind of like blown up because of that, you know, and it's conformed into this certain identity or, or what it was. And actually it is artistic. It is creative. It is sad at times. Like the oceans, like, you know, for every person, the ocean gives something different and that's relatable across the entire globe. So it's like being in the water and surfing is, it's, has so much more that I think the excitement even behind WSL is like sharing that story. Like that's what I love being a part of the tour because it's outreaching to little girls that think that, you know, they can't be something or, or, or make a career out of a passion. Like they have to go to school or they have to get good grades. And sure, those things are, are foundational and establishing, you know, commitment. But at the same time, like surfing is, is so much more and I love the aspect of, yeah, just creating out there. And, you know, you don't have to be good to feel that. That's what I love. Like, all my friends are people that I meet, like, on shoots and things. And makeup artists are there, like, you know what? But I'm going to be so bad. Like, you know, I don't want to do it. And and I'm like, but the feeling that you'll get just being out in the board or watching a sunrise, like, it will change your life. And I think that's a big part of kind of, like, yeah, sharing the culture of surfing and being a part of WSL and being able to go to all these amazing places to hopefully get one person to feel that because it will change your life. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is like it, it becomes a platform to share whatever your message is and your message doesn't have to be the same as the next exactly. person. You, you mentioned there was a year or I mean, two years, correct me, where you didn't, you're in between sponsors. Um, Four. Right? Four years. Yeah, so years. <laughs> you were going to correct me. Sorry. Uh, no, no, that's, I mean, I, I it was a, it was a it was a long four years. That's I think that's why I'm. Trying to <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure, but like that is I think you more so than anyone else. Like that is super rare that you're able to essentially go out into the wilderness of not being sponsored at that time with the industry doing what it's doing, stay dedicated, continue to achieve, and then find the right home. Like I mean, I'm strugg yeah. I'm struggling to think of really any other example recently where that has happened. Well, I think. You know, I had to 
think bigger than my situation. And to be honest, when I won the US Open for the first time, my first world tour event win, you know, that changed my life and opened my eyes to, to what I was capable of. And I remember the following event was at Trestles and it was sponsored by Hurley at the time. And, you know, I, I've rarely met Bob Hurley. I didn't even know if he knew who I was. And uh, I remember watching the conditions and I went out in my first heat and I beat Malia and Nikki. And that was a big thing like, oh, you know, most people that win an event for the first time go out and lose and all this stuff. And yeah. I went out and surfed good and I remember watching for my next heat and Bob Hurley came up to me and shook my hand and said like, I just want to congratulate you and say that like, you know, he was like, as, as weird as it sounds, like not being something to being as successful in what you are, like yeah. good job. Like most people won't make it to this point. And like, I just want to tell you like, congratulations, like you did it. And I remember getting like goosebumps on my arms and the back of my neck, like, okay, like Bob Hurley, like he's the Mecca of the surf, yeah. you know, culture just, just said that. Like that just was insane, right? Like I, I just, I realized that the four years of not having the sponsor and everything and, and, and pushing and, and trying to be the right person and do the right thing along the way, like that all paid off and like, I'm good enough. Like, I, like not like I made it, but like, I am good enough. Like I can do this. And I think the beauty that I've just been so thankful today is that I had four years of struggling. I had, you know, Ronnie Nelson from Oakley was the one guy that still paid me, gave me a paycheck and that got me on the QS and where I am. But I'm sitting today in a more successful and financially good place than I ever was when my whole world, my whole surf industry is crumbling yeah, in and, ways. And, and, I, and I'm like, it's incredible. Like I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm doing the best that I have when a lot of people aren't. And so I just am thankful for that. Well, and I think that what you touch on in terms of sense of accomplishment and, and just comfort that comes from that experience is like, there's a lot of self doubt that would go on in that period of four years of being like, am I good enough? I don't know. Like, I, and no one's still, you know how many people from sponsors, like, you know, that would tell me, I would say, we would love to sponsor you. We would love to sponsor you. And I would never get a call. Yeah. Like, oh, I can't believe you don't have a sponsor. Like, you know. It's a lot of lip service. And just, you know, would love to sponsor you. We, we, we have budget, all this stuff. Would never get the call. And I'm like, even even those promises, like that stuff wears on you, right? Like yeah. so much. And I would always be like, don't. And it was a lesson for me. Like, don't say you're going to do something and don't do it. You know. Yeah. And that was actions something. are the only thing that matter. Yeah. Well, and it, the doubt thing, I think, is particularly fraught in surfing. Yeah. And, I mean, you can sit there and you can, like, if you knew you were the world's best basketball player and you trained harder than anyone else, you could go out on the court. It's the same every day. You know what you can do and you know that you're better than everyone. There's an element of confidence and swagger associated with that. You can have all those things in surfing and go out in the ocean. The ocean's like too bad. Like, so I, I think that that feeds into that doubt where you're just like, I don't know if I can get this. And, and that's the thing. Like it feeds into the doubt, but it also gives you a glimpse of hope because yeah. the conditions are kind of like your downfall to your result possibly. Yeah. Like only if I had, you know, one more opportunity or, you know, my time ran out, like it gives you this and maybe at some points in a career, it's not healthy because you always think, you know, you can tend to think, oh, the conditions are, are the reason that I lost or, right. um, you know, I can still make it. I can still make it. And maybe like your life is turning a different direction and, you know, you can't see it because you're so focused on, on the ocean right. in that sort of like variable. But I think that's the beauty in, in competing is that you, you know, you don't know your playing field. So you got to adjust and, um, 
If not, then you probably lose, which happens all the time. <laughs> but so, sometimes the ball bounces the other way, and it's like the universe delivers you oh, what the, you need. At the U.S. Open, it, it's actually like kind of scary because I remember even the first year U.S. Open, I was like, any time that it was my priority or my heat was on, like the the perfect wave would come to me, like it would come. And so many other heats, I, you're fighting for waves or the other person's getting it, and it's like it was almost like when it's your time, it's your it's your time. Sure. It's your turn. Like I kept saying, like I, I gotta allow myself to to be able to win, right. and I gotta you know walk this out. And and so then it kind of gave me a little bit of this thing after, like if the waves weren't coming to me, then it wasn't my time. So there's like also that complex within that. But then you're yeah, at the same time I'm going okay, universe, like it's my turn, it's my turn. Like and surfing on the partnership side too you've actually been one of the few people that's broken out of just the surfing world and you have i presume still have a relationship with art of sport and and other opportunities can you talk a little bit about that yeah i mean a big part of the four years of not having a sponsor like i i was almost mad at the surf industry to be honest like i said people promising they'd sponsor me seeing my friends with companies with amazing contracts like i was almost like I wanted to rebel against it mm. in ways. And there were so many other companies out there that I felt like, you know, weren't introduced to surfing or they weren't a core brand, but they were so cool and they're actually relatable to me. Um, Free People was one of them that I reached out with my manager at the time and they were so excited to work with me and, and be a part of surf and um, then to come out, come on to Art of Sport. Um, and, you know, with the loss of Kobe, like, I'm like speechless with how incredible that company is and identifying the diversity in, in sport and individuals. Can you give um, us a little bit of background in terms of what the company is and, yeah. and how it was formed? Art of Sport, literally Art of Sport, right? So, I mean, it was founded obviously like the king, the black mamba, like Kobe. He was the forefront um, on an athlete's position and he and some partners believed in um, the diversity in sport and the individual, and they wanted to bring out a product that catered to an athlete. And that didn't even have to be a professional. He didn't have to be in a jersey, but each individual is is an athlete or can be competitive or can want to perform um, on a day-to-day basis. And, and he wanted to give a product that was amazing for performance and whatever that was. And he believed in a strong female and he believed in um, the component of men and women together. And and that's where he saw my part um, in the company. And yeah. So he reaches out to you and says, do you want to be part of this? So his people reach out to my people. And yeah, they just, they loved who I was. And I wasn't obviously the the world champion or anything, but they love what I stood for. Um, and I mean, even based on this conversation, like, like, and what you, how you approach life and what you've been through, that is the Mamba mentality. Right. Like, unquestionably. Totally. And I, like, those are the milestones in my career that I would get those phone calls and they would have those little messages for me, like a personal affirmation and like what I'm doing is the right thing. And for someone like that, or to be a part of a team, yeah like that was like a slap in the face like you're good enough yeah like you you are capable you are good enough and did you guys have many conversations there is a lot of calls right because sure. you know like our the team is so diverse that yeah. you it's know, like a like big group in, call everyone's in season people. Yeah, right like right, in yeah. season like how do you get Juju smith like 
Kevin, like me, like how do you, Kobe, everyone, how do you get everyone in the right time? So yeah. it's, it's an incredible brand. And, you know, even though he's not here, I, I am 100% confident that his legacy and what he stood for to start that company will go on and continue to be successful. Let's talk about Channel Islands as we're, we're here in the Dream Factory. <laughs> thanks, thanks, boys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, they're all up in San Francisco. They don't even know we're here. I just broke in the back door. <laughs> um, we'll take a few boards on the way out. Yeah, right? I'm like... Dave, you like Dane? I like I, Kelly. That's it. We'll just, we'll just. And that whole rack over there is actually all Almeric shapes. So when did you first start riding for the Channel Islands? I started riding for them at 16. So that would be, oh gosh, I'm not doing math right now. Long time ago. I'm 29, guys. You, you might want to do the math Work for it me. Out. <laughs> it, it is, I mean, um, for someone that surfs at your level, and even recently with the diversification of equipment that you've been riding, there really is no other option. Like, you're an Ojai girl. They're here, right here in Carpinteria. It is really like a family business in a lot of ways. Totally. When I first got approached by them, Brian Oresco, he was the old team manager, was here forever, local Santa Barbara carp guy. And he reached out and wanted to sponsor me. And so we had the conversation, we went for a surf, and he said, we'd love to sponsor you. Um, each board's going to be $350. And <laughs> is that how sponsorship works? I was like, okay, this is like the most sickest surf company board shaper in the world. And like, I don't, we don't have any money, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember going home with my mom and being like, you know, like I, I can't think of like any other company I could ride for. I'd like, it's amazing. And she was like, we just, we don't have the money for, for that. And so she's like, let me call, let me call Brian. Let me call him. So she called him. And just, you know, was super honest, like, we're just, Sage would love to ride for you guys, but she's not, in, like, we're not in a position to, to pay. And Brian goes, let me make a few calls. So he he, call, he comes back to Channel Islands, obviously talks to, like, Al and the crew over here. And at that time, nobody got free boards. Like, that was kind of a prestigiousness, like, of Channel Islands is that, you you know, you paid for your value. Like, it was a yeah. part of giving back. And they honored it and said, we're not going to charge you for boards. Like, we would love for you to be on our team. And, like, I remember crying, like... It was like Christmas morning, like the best thing ever. And I think just my relationship with them being so close and their personal interest in my happiness was something that's so cool. And I mean, they make the best boards, right? Like, how could I go wrong? So in over a decade of working with them, you talked about writing, you know, epoxy skin boards. Don't, don't talk too much more about that because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's what I write. But like heading into 2020, right? What are the models that you're working on for the CT? Who's your shaper? And then in addition to that, um, are you are you incorporating anything that is like a non-Ferrari model into your year? Well, what I've loved about Channel Islands is, you know, and I don't know if this is something that's supposed to be public. I'm sure I might get in trouble, but it's that's fine. Right. This is what this but, podcast is for. <laughs> sorry, guys. But the, the beautiful thing is like they actually have a collective group of shapers. So you think of Channel Islands, it's one label says Almeric, of course, on it, but they have these kind of shadow shapers underneath. I think it's kind of like... That's five. pretty standard at like any board company. It is? Okay, yeah. thank God. Guys, this is standard, so I'm not getting <laughs> in trouble. Dave said. Al's in here shaping okay. all 400 <laughs> boards today. And the cool thing is, is that like each one of these shapers that are here are incredible. Yeah. Um, and they're really big fans of surfing themselves. So they have the experience and they love uh, watching it. So... You know, I've been working with a guy, Mike Andrews, the past two years, incredible boards. It was much different than say two years ago, I was riding like sharper rails, Right. had to be super technical. Like I said, I like to stand tall, I get a bit lazy and so that would show. And so that really fine tuned my surfing and you know, there's a mic, there's so many mics here and then a Mike Walters <laughs> and right. he'd shape like 
a random board for me. The boys wouldn't even tell me that he shaped it. And I got like second in, in Spain on it. On Mike's board, I won the US Open. And this year, I've always had a, a closeness with Britt Merrick. Sure. Um, I went to his church for years and found myself sitting in the back seat by myself some Sundays, just like crying and trying to take in the message. And initially, when he kind of came on board two years ago, my first instinct was like, oh, go to Britt, right? You know, sure. like Britt's here, he's Al's son, like... You know, I went to his church and um, I felt this loyalty to to Mike, yep. a guy here, because uh, every event he'd come down when I was down in Oceanside and watch me and, and encourage me. And I was like, this guy doesn't even have to be here. It was before he even wrote his boards. Right. You know, there was another shaper here previous. And I was like, the right thing to do would would be to, to get to ride this guy's boards on the tour and, you know, give him a moment of glory or loss or just a chance to shape for someone else on the CT and a female, like, you know, he supported me. And, and so in the back of my head too, I was like, gosh, I would, I would love to ride Brit's boards, but I just, you know, I want to honor Mike and, and I want the US Open on it. And coming into this year, Channel Islands is like, so it's such a family, like it's so open to change. And so I asked Brit this one day if he could shape me some boards and we can, um, he could really help with the language that comes with trying to make a good surfboard. Sure. Because naturally, technically, I am a blonde. Like, <laughs> I just, a lot of things I don't get or I can't retain. And so working with Brit, a big part of it is like, I'm going to teach you about your board and I'm going to understand how you talk about it and then I'm going to tie it into what it actually does and why it does what it what it can do um and so Britt is going to be shaping my quiver this year and gosh like model wise i think he's i can't i I maybe can't disclose this he's working up some combination of the two okay Um, let's not disclose it i want to keep people guessing right yeah Yeah. so and anything any do you in 2020 do you throw like a a a fish in the bag or probably not a mid-length but for travel but like is there anything that's like look I've got, you know, five or 10 or however many boards for competition. And I've got one for kind of non The fish beard, the twin fin. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was talking about earlier, um, for, t- for me to ride a twin fin, I have to bottom turn and I lack bottom turning a lot of times. And so that's kind of like a fine tuner for yeah, me. It's functional. It's functional. And that, that will definitely be in my bag. The language thing's interesting because you you talk to some of the surfers, again, whether they're on tour or off tour at the highest level, and some of them are savant at like knowing everything about design. And then some are just like, I've got no idea. I think I remember Italo being like, I don't know what the dimensions are. I don't know what the rail is. I just know they're made with love and I don't have to worry about it. There's been other situations where like team managers are like, oh yeah, this person has like six boards. I will not let him or her bring these down to the event site. I'm letting them bring two down because I don't want them to be paralyzed by decision. Like, you know, like I just want to simplify things. for. Well, a really big part like over here at Channel Islands is Nathaniel Kern's been one of like my best guy friends since I was 16 years old. And so him moving from a professional surfer into my team manager, I also trust in his judgment and in what I need. So for me, I'm the type of surfer like Italo, like I don't want to know the size. I get paralyzed by which board I should ride. Should it go bigger? Should, you know, I told you I'd ride a skin board. Like, <laughs> yeah, if so I had to choose. Can so, I keep riding that? Yeah, no, okay, right. no, okay. So Nathaniel's like, okay, so we're going to get you on a performance shortboard and you're actually going to order more than three boards every six months. Like you need to get on a little bit different shapes and different things. And so the past, 
you know, four years, he's really been helping me with that. And then that's kind of like groomed me to be able to, to get with Brit and to try and find a language of, of being like, no, this is really important that you know you're bored because you feel more confident, you understand the conditions, so you're not paralyzed by judgment of should I ride this or should I not? Like, there's an excitement in knowing. Yeah. You're young, <laughs> you're very fit, you have, um, you know, a good foundation of supporters, it seems like, whether it's Channel Islands or Ruka or Buell or Shark or Health Aid or Art of Sport. You, you, you've kind of been through the desert, so to speak, and, or the wilderness and, and dealing with doubt and it feels like you're almost in a better place than maybe at any point in your career i mean i've been watching you surf for a long time i think you you're you're surfing better than you ever have how do you approach 2020 broadly from a surfing standpoint a career standpoint and then if you can looking at it as a stepping stone to the next part of your life like how are you looking at it heading into february 2020 is uh i'm doing what i want (laughs) i think for a long time i sacrificed a lot of things in what other people wanted and kind of what that direction looked like. And I feel confident enough as a person that I'm going to do what I want. So I'm going to surf the way that I want to. I'm going to compete. I feel super competitive. Again, the last two years, I kind of lost that fire. I, I want to win. I want to, uh, yeah, I just, I, I'm not going to be afraid that the decisions um, that I make or what I want to do is going to affect people in a bad way in, in my surrounding circle, but that everyone kind of is like, okay, it's time for you to shine. So whether that's being selfish, if you don't come to dinner, if you don't show up at, on holidays, if you don't come out to party, if you, you know, all those things, I'm not going to feel bad for denying because I, I want to win. So with that, I've had this desire for a regimen. I feel like I had a lot of fun the last two years on tour and i I want to go to each place and I want to create a routine geared towards winning, geared towards competing. And I feel confident in that. I think the big thing for me, if anything, is I want to reinvent my surfing a bit. I I want there to be an aggressiveness within it. I think at times I've looked lazy or I look like I don't care. That's never been the case, but I've been able to understand that body language and that posture. And so in 2020, you know, I love my sponsors. Um, I've got a really good team on a social side, on a management side that's handling all the professional kind of emailing so that I can focus on my athleticism. Um, and I just, yeah, I want to go for it this year. And I, I'm not, I'm not feeling bad, which is, is a big thing. I'm not letting people affect me and I want to win. And I, I want to, I'm not doing the QS for the first time. I've done the QS for nine years. Every, t- every year that I've been on tour, I've done it. That's six years worth. First year, I'm not doing the QS and... Uh, no safety net. No safety net. And I think there's that element of performance has to be done. And how bad do I want it? The QS, I found success. I've won it two times. So that's always been a, a kind of a cop-out for me sure. in ways. Sure, I, I'm doubling up and giving myself a chance, but I, I'm not allowing myself to fully commit to the World Championship Tour. And if I'm going to believe that I can be the best, then I have to. I actually have to take steps and sacrifices that point to that direction. I believe you can. <laughs> Thanks. Before we go, we have the lightning round. So we're going to have 10 How's questions. How does this work? <laughs> 10 questions. <laughs> answer as fast as you can. Okay. If you could have one. That's, bo- hard. That's hard for me because you see my answers are like 40 minutes long. Each. That's fine. You, I mean, you should see some of the stuff we come up with here. Uh, one board set up for the rest of your life. Single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless. Twin fin. Coffee or tea. Coffee. Burrito or pizza. 
Oh, gosh. Mm, pizza. Last book you read. Oh, Falling Upwards, Get Your World Rocked. Best surf film ever. Oh, gosh. Loose Change. One wave you never have to go back to. Oh, God, I wish it was Margaret River. <laughs> you got to go this year again. <laughs> Only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. Ventura Point. Best person to share a lineup with. Oh, is this like a fan moment? Oh, God, don't think Sage just answer. Uh, I've, ticked, I've taken too long, haven't I? No. I don't know, Lisa Anderson. Worst person to share a lineup with. Oh, gosh. Your local surfer that didn't make it, that is really aggressive in back paddles. <laughs> that might be the best answer I've ever gotten <laughs> to that question. Okay, last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... Not caring what other people think. Great. Sage Erickson, thank you for coming on the lineup. <laughs> thanks, guys. Or thanks, Dave. Is it guys? Uh, guys, yeah. No, thanks, it's, people. It's a whole team behind this. Awesome. So that's it. That's our conversation with Sage Erickson. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. If you haven't listened to our other pods, please download, listen, and subscribe if you like them. Uh, they're available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday. I hope you're getting waves wherever you're at, and we'll see you then.